Now, if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22. This is my last in the series on the book of Revelation. I've tried to give you some of the big picture, the big themes that we find in Revelation. I know some of you have expressed how much it has meant to you and others have had questions and that's okay. Let us not forget that the book of Revelation is a very difficult book. There's nothing easy about it. And yet it is an inspired book. It is inspired of God. And we are expected to delve into it and seek to understand what God has revealed to us. So now we come to the end of the book, uh, Revelation chapter 21. So I'm going to begin to read in verse 1 of chapter 21. I prefer uh, what the Greek text says when John opens with the words, then I saw, it's literally, and I saw. Then tends to convey the idea of chronology, and there's nothing wrong with that uh, per se, but and is just what he sees, the next vision, and so on. So, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So now he's seen something in the future, right? The first earth is gone, the first heaven is gone, and the sea is no more, he says, so I saw a new heaven, a new earth. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear, or wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true, and he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. Then came one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And we'll just end there, and may the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Now let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have before us this morning at the end of your word in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, such a glorious vision is given to John. We desire, desire this morning to comprehend all things new. So we pray that you would, in the preaching of the word of God, receive all the praise and all the glory and let the preacher be as nothing and fade away. And may your word come through with power because the word of God, when it is preached, is truly the word of God. And so we thank you for your word this morning and desire above all that we might comprehend it and be saturated by it and delighted with it. So give us hope and give us joy and stir us up as we look forward to that which belongs to us because of what Jesus has done for us. So we praise you and we thank you and ask your blessing now upon the preaching of your word. May Jesus be praised and glorified. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Whenever you read a book, if you're like me, you always anticipate the end of the book to be better than the beginning. Uh, if the end is better than, I mean, if the beginning is better than the end, then really the end is not satisfactory, is it? I mean, when we watch films or movies, it is always the end that we are interested in. When I read a book, that's exactly how I come to the book. I know that the beginning is going to introduce me to certain things, show me certain things, but it's really the end of the book that I'm interested in. Because when I get to the end of the book, I will soon know quick enough whether my hopes and my expectations have been realized, that the promises that the book gave me in the beginning have been realized and have come to pass. And I think that's true of all of us. We, we read books in that way, thinking automatically that the end is always going to be better than the beginning. Recently, I, I watched a, an old western. It was about 60 or 70 years of age. And uh, my hopes were really built up by the hero, uh, this western man, only to find at the end that he was shot and killed. And I must confess to you that Chris could hear me erupt from the living room as I watched the ending of that. Oh no! What happened? That is not what I expected. Because you see, all along you, you are having your hopes built up and your expectations built up so that when the end comes you hope that they will be met. And when they are not met, you feel let down and you feel that nothing has been achieved. Now we have come this morning to the very end of the Bible. We have come to 
Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, which shows us, doesn't it, a glorious picture or vision of the end. It is much better, isn't it, than the beginning. Because in the beginning, we find sin has entered the world and man has fallen and man is in ruin and he needs redemption and he needs salvation. But in the end, when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, the whole package is summarized for us in simply the fact that we will be with God and God will be with us. And is there anything better than that as an end? In fact, my anticipation and my hope as a Christian is precisely what I read here in chapter 21 and chapter 22. This is where we are going if we are Christians. This is the hope that we have. This is the anticipation that we have. This is, this is all of our longings met and fulfilled. This is the promise of Jesus satisfying us. Read of such things, don't we, about the water of life and the river of life and how satisfactory those things are to us in the end. It's not a physical satisfaction, is it? It's a spiritual satisfaction. I have tried, and you have tried, physical satisfaction. It's for a moment in time. It passes. It leaves you deflated. It leaves you guilty. It leaves you defiled. But not the end for the believer. All our hopes, all our anticipations are for the end. And so I know when I read the end of my Bible, that the end surely is the fulfillment and the realization of everything that we find here. In fact, Jesus, God, says right here, Behold, I am making all things new. Not some things, but every single thing I am making new. And so as we come to this, we want to understand, well, how do we get, or how did we, how does John get to the end? There is for John immediately this very near context in his mind that he sees in his vision, Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. That's just where we come out of, right, as you go into chapter 21 and 22. So in the near context, that's in the mind and the heart of John as he has been recording and writing these visions. So that's the near context. But the broad context, of course, is from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, from the very beginning to the end. And I want to say to you that we should keep those things in our minds when we try to understand how did John get to the end? How do we get to the end? In fact, what we discover first of all is that in Revelation chapter 19, which we have considered together, we found two things to be true. Number one, the beast was defeated, and everyone associated with the beast was also defeated. And in Revelation 19, when did that happen? That happened when Jesus came, or when Jesus comes. That's the first thing, Revelation 19. The beast is defeated, and all who are with him, his armies, his kings, his generals, they're all defeated by the one who comes, faithful and true, riding out of heaven on that glorious white horse, that vision that John sees of Jesus coming. That's the first thing. The second thing is, in Revelation chapter 20, we discover that Satan, the devil, the dragon, is himself defeated, and all the nations with him. And I want to suggest to you, because I believe this to be absolutely true, that the defeat of the beast and all the armies and all the peoples of the world, and the defeat of Satan and all the nations of the world, are simply the same description in two different chapters, one for the beast and one for the dragon, of the same event, the, their destruction, when Jesus comes. So when Jesus comes, the beast is taken care of. When Jesus comes, the dragon is taken care of. And the end result of both the beast and the dragon is the second death or the lake of fire. And so when the Lord Jesus comes, we discover, when we read chapter 19 and chapter 20, about the end, about the destruction that will come upon the beast and the false prophet and their, their allies and Satan who deceives the nations, that they are one and the same event. They happen when Jesus comes, the Lord Jesus returns. That's number one and number two. Revelation 19, Revelation 20. The third thing is that when you read Revelation 20, 
which is often viewed, I think, by many of us as a very difficult passage, especially when we read about this millennium and this 1,000-year reign of Christ. But may I suggest to you that Revelation chapter 20, particularly verses 1 through 6, are concerned with this church age, so that two things are said to be true of this age. The first is that you discover when Revelation 20 is begun that Satan is bound with a great chain. And this, of course, is spiritual imagery, spiritual vision of the impotence of the dragon because the stronger man, our Lord Jesus Christ, has bound the enemy, bound the strong man, Satan, the dragon. And now, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is stronger than the strong man, the dragon, Satan, plunders his kingdom. Just like Daniel the prophet told us, when you read the prophecies of Daniel about the fourth kingdom and how a stone cut out from the mountain shall crush that, and how we saw last week that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we discover during the church age is that Satan is made impotent in that he does not have absolute power over the nations to keep them in darkness, or to put it another way, to keep them from becoming believers because Jesus saves his people in this world. So that's the first thing we discover when we consider the opening of Revelation chapter 22. The second part of that is, of course, that the saints in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 are said to reign with Christ for a thousand years and it's in heaven and it's not on earth. You hear so much about a 1,000-year literal reign of Jesus on earth, yet Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, which talks about a millennium, which talks about a 1,000-year reign, says nothing of anybody reigning on earth, but only the saints of God who reign in heaven. So when we come to the end, you have to keep that in your mind, that Revelation 20 is the church age, and what you find at the end of the church age, is the defeat of Satan, and at the same time, we have in chapter 19, the defeat of the beast, and so on. Both occur, binding of Satan, and the saints reigning with Jesus, during this 1,000 year reign of King Jesus. Number four, we discover that there is in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 a final judgment. The Bible describes it as a great white throne judgment when the dead are raised from wherever they are to be found and the books are opened and the dead are judged according to what is in the book. And of course there's another book that exists, the Lamb's Book of Life, and those who are written, names are written in there, enter, of course, as we know, into eternal life. But what do those four things signify in Revelation 19 and 20? They signify the end of the beast, and the end of Satan, and the end of the wicked, the end of the unbelieving world in rebellion against Christ, the Lamb of God. That's what they suggest. That's what they communicate. And how, how real is that end? It's described as they are cast into the lake of fire, the second death. How horrible and violent that sounds to us. How can we witness to other people and not keep that end, the lake of fire, the second death, from our minds? In fact, compassion should compel us and love should drive us when we seek to share the gospel because that is the end of all who do not repent and believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible couches that in, in language that means to us that this is a living end. This is not an end where there is no more existence. No, this is an end in a lake of fire, an end that is called a second death. It is a living death. A living hell, a fiery wrath. How frightful such a thing is. It's not annihilation. We don't believe in the annihilation of the soul. No, the, what the, the Bible is communicating here is a consummation or a consuming, but not a quenching. So where the worm does not die and the fire 
is not quenched is the second death, is the lake of fire, is to be cast, as Jesus reminds us, into torments and so on from Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel. But that is not the end of us, is it? It's not the end for the Christian. That is not the end for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, may I suggest to you that's just the beginning for us. The beginning of eternity with Christ, with God, forever and ever. When you read the book of Revelation, you should always keep in mind two main purposes. The first purpose is that Jesus has begun to fulfill all the long-awaited promises that you read about in the Old Testament scriptures as they come to fruition through his death, through his resurrection, and through his heavenly reign. That's the first purpose when you read Revelation to keep in your mind that Jesus has begun to fulfill all the promises made about him and to him. The second purpose, of course, is that Jesus will soon come again in great glory and power to bring an end to the purpose of God. In fact, if you look at chapters 22 and verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. And what should you do since Jesus says, I'm coming soon? Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the book of this prophecy. So I have a responsibility, since Jesus is coming soon, to be obedient, to keep the words of this prophecy of Revelation chapter 22. So I know that Jesus is soon coming to bring an end to the purposes of God, and those include, number one, the judgment of the evil and the wicked or the unbelieving as you see at the end of chapter 19 and at the end of chapter 20. Secondly, Jesus is coming soon to save his people, to deliver his people, to take them home, to be with him forever. And Jesus, thirdly, is coming to restore or to bring about something brand new. And Revelation 21 begins like that, doesn't it? I saw a new heavens and a new earth and so on. This is language, I suggest to you, that is designed to keep the seven churches faithful to the end. I say that because in this very chapter, chapter 22, if you look at verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Notice, I've sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus gives hope and encouragement, doesn't he, for us. Now we come then to the end. There are four things I want to show you from chapter 21 and chapter 22 that can fill our minds and hearts with anticipation and with hope. The first is that there is going to be a new cosmos I saw a new heavens and a new earth, a new cosmos. Secondly, there's going to be a new creation. Behold, I'm making all things new, a new creation. Thirdly, there's going to be a new city, because John sees a city coming down, new Jerusalem, out of heaven as a bride prepared for the Lamb, a new city. And finally, may I suggest to you that in this newness, we shall all experience a new communion, a fellowship with God that is forever and forever. So a new cosmos, a new creation, and a new city, and a new communion. So let's begin. Will you look with me at verse 1 of chapter 21? Verse 1 of chapter 21. A new cosmos. Behold, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why did John see a new heaven and a new earth? Because in the vision that's given him, the first earth, the first heaven, have passed away. Now, the prophet Isaiah has a lot to say about what John writes about here. So in chapter 65 and verse 17, the prophet Isaiah records God's word, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So what John is recording here is coming straight out of the prophet Isaiah about this new heavens and a new earth. And we must ask ourselves the question, well, why are, why are new heavens and a new earth? What is the purpose of that? 
And simply the first answer is, of course, because the old, or the first, has passed away. So because there's no more first earth, first heavens, there is, John tells us, a second, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, you know, this is a remarkable world we live in, isn't it? A remarkable creation. There is such beauty in our world. Uh, if you look at the, the, the world of flowers, for example, you, you just cannot help but be staggered at the variety of what you find in flowers around the world. Their beauty, their extraordinary ability to survive in a variety of situations, all because God has made them and created them. Flowers are beautiful. They appeal to us. So when we look at this world, we do see such things as beauty. You look at the heavens at night and you, you see the stars and the splendor of them. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. That's what we see because it's beyond our comprehension. We recognize that God is the one who made those things and sustains those things. So we recognize that there is still a display of the wonder and the beauty and the glory in this world that we see with our eyes. But we also recognize that in this world that there is a fallen humanity. That there is a sinfulness to man that pervades all of humanity, not some of humanity, but every single person that has ever been born has been born in the same condition, this sinful condition. They are rife with sin. They cannot help but sin the moment they are born. In fact, they do sin, as we know, even in the womb. And so we, we recognize that the first heavens and earth are affected, as we read in Romans chapter 8 this morning, are affected by fallen humanity and the defilement of sin. One of the, the great statements about the deity of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 is a reflection back on the Psalms, Psalm 102, written by David. And this is what Psalm 102 says, 25 and 26, of old... You laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens, all the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. As for Jesus, your years shall never end. He's everlasting. By comparison to a world, a heavens, an earth that shall be changed and shall perish as the psalmist says and as Hebrews chapter 1 reveals. Isaiah confirms that in chapter 34 and verse 4. He says, All the host of heaven shall roll away, and the skies will roll up like a scroll. So easily done, right? If you can think of the skies and, and the world just rolled up and done away with. And now the prophet Isaiah sees that. He, sees, he says in chapter 51 and verse 6, The heavens vanish like smoke. They're there and they're gone. The earth will wear out like a garment. So the Old Testament has this vision, this picture of a disintegration, of a collapse, of the end, of something that happens to the earth, to the heavens, that they seem to be there one moment and then gone the next. And I want to show you, if you'll turn with me to Second Peter, that Peter has the same concept or idea. So go back to Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and look at verse 7. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Second Peter 3, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now go down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is the coming of the Lord. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, melt as they burn. But according to his promise, 
we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now you just can't avoid the language of Peter, right? Very powerful language, very provocative language, very direct language telling us that something's going to happen to the earth and to the heavens. And so Peter's agreeing and stating we are looking for and hastening and waiting for this new heavens and this new earth. And you'll notice in chapter 21 of Revelation and verse 1, that little phrase, and the sea was no more. The sea was no more. Now, I'm a great lover of the sea, by the way. I love ships and navies, and uh, I study historical warfare, naval warfare. I'm interested in those things. But the sea in the Bible is sometimes represented as picturing the nations. And why is the sea pictured as representing the nations? Because the sea is violent. The sea is turbulent. The sea is foreboding. The sea is, is hatred, upheaval. It is just a simple picture of humanity. What is man like? Man is filled with violence. Man is filled with hatred. Man is turbulent. Man is, whatever he touches, he brings to upheaval and so on. So the sea, which is no more, is just simply John's way in the vision, in the imagery, saying that the violence of the nations are no more to be uh, gone through or experienced. It truly is a brand new heavens and a brand new earth that is before us. So, that's the first thing we see. We have a new heavens and a new earth. But secondly, will you notice, we do have a new creation because in verse 5 of chapter 21, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And isn't the one who is seated on the throne, God and the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, the only ones capable of making all things new? The only ones capable of actually bringing in a new heavens and a new earth. And so uh, the prophet Isaiah again reminds us in chapter 43 and verse 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing. That's what John is thinking. God is doing a new thing. I'm be behold, I'm making all things new. Now what is it about this new creation? New heavens, new earth, a new creation that we should think about. The first thing you should say is that this is not a renovation. This is not a renovation. For instance, you might decide to renovate your bathroom or your kitchen. In fact, we have a lot of television shows all about renovation. What do they mean by renovation? They mean improvement. They mean change to some degree that will make life a little easier for you, be a little bit more uh, satisfying to you in living your life. This is not about renovation because this is about making all things new, about creating something that is brand new. Not like the old, because the old consists of violence and hatred and fallen humanity and the defilement of sin. No, this is something so totally different to that, that there is no sin, that there is no defilement. And it is God who is making all these things new. The idea really is the idea of regeneration. Because isn't that what a new creation is ultimately? A regeneration. A new nature is given to us, for example, when we are born again, born of the Spirit. The interesting thing in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, when Jesus said to Nicodemus was, you must be born again. The interesting thing about that was Nicodemus couldn't be born again by himself. He can't enter even into his mother's womb. And be, in fact, what, what role did any of us play in our first birth, physical birth? Nothing. You're just delivered, right? You just come into this world. You had nothing to do with it. No power over your birth. So too is the spiritual birth, the new birth, the new creation. You have no power over it. You have no power to bring it about. You have no act of your will to bring it to pass. You can't choose it. It is done to you. It is from above. It is birthed by the Spirit. It is a spiritual matter. It's a heavenly matter. So to be born again is not a renovation of my old nature. 
but is the implanting, the giving to me of a brand new nature that counters the old and is at always at war with the old. This is regeneration. This is the language of verse 6. I mean, look at 21 verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. What is done? I'm making all things new is done. It is done. Write this down. Sorry, uh, I am, verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now notice what he says. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That is the language of regeneration. That is the language of new creation. To the thirsty, to those who cannot satisfy themselves spiritually, to them I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So here's a gift that you can't buy, that you cannot put money down to change, to bring about. This is the gift of new life. This is the water of life that he talks about. This is a spiritual refreshment because it applies to the thirsty. To the thirsty, Jesus says, I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I give it freely. I give new life. I give refreshment. I give spiritual satisfaction. That's what I give. Isn't that what Jesus meant in John chapter 6 and verse 35? The one who believes in me shall never thirst. Notice that. If you believe in Jesus, Jesus says you never thirst. You are satisfied spiritually. Totally. Jesus is not talking about physical water and physical drinking, is he? Made that clear the woman at the well in John chapter 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's exactly what 21 verse 6 is telling us. Isn't this the fulfillment of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, right? If anyone is in Christ... He is what? A new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away, right? Behold, the new has come. It's a language of new creation. This is what, what John is seeing here, something that is brand new, that is glorious. Now, remember when you became a Christian, how everything was brand new, wasn't it? It wasn't like your old life. You were forgiven. Not because you deserved to be forgiven. You were loved. Not because you deserved to be loved. You were shown grace and mercy. Not because you deserved anything of that. None of us did. But we were given that as a gift by God. We discovered that we were really spiritually thirsty and hungry. And we looked outside of ourselves because there's no hope within ourselves. We looked to Jesus. If anyone now in Christ. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. The old is gone. So the new heavens, the new earth, a new creation, that's what we see here. It has to happen, right? Because Romans chapter 8 speaks of creation, this creation, current creation, as the physical creation, as a creation that longs to be set free from its bondage to corruption. Well, how did that happen? When Adam sinned? When Adam sinned, it wasn't just woe is Adam. But creation felt the effects of the corruption of sin through Adam. And, you know, men and women today starting, I suppose, to realize that they should actually maybe care for the planet. And I do trust that we do have some concern for the planet. You don't just throw out a, a soda can on the road and let it lie there. No, we, we, we should understand that we are to have dominion, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over this world that the world is given to man to rule over. Therefore, we have a responsibility. I, I can see that. That's true. But here you discover that creation longs to be free from its bondage to this corruption. And it has been groaning, hasn't it, in the pains of childbirth since the fall of man, since the fall of Adam. And not only that, but we are told that creation will only be free when the children of God receive their adoption as sons, which is said to be the redemption of their bodies. And when is that? When Jesus comes. The resurrection. 
What a glorious change has come about us, right? That we, the thirsty, spiritually, are said to be this new creation who drink from this spring of water of life. What glorious hope we have. So we, John thinks about, and he sees this, but he sees something else, doesn't he? He sees, thirdly, a new city. A new city. Look at verse 2 of chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice, the holy city, the New Jerusalem. Now, if you talk to people about the old Jerusalem, they would have said that was the holy city. But that's not how John refers to this Jerusalem. This Jerusalem is the holy city. And will you notice that it is actually set in the context of a marriage? If you go back to chapter 19, look at verse 7. Chapter 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So this, this heavenly Jerusalem that is said to be a bride prepared for her husband or uh, adorned as a bride for her husband is set within this framework of a marriage, a marriage feast, a marriage rejoicing. Notice verse 9 of chapter 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I will show you the bride. Okay, so what is the bride? Look at verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That's the bride. So the bride is said to be the holy city. The bride is said to be the new Jerusalem. The bride is said to be the wife of the Lamb. That's all language that just points to the church of Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ. In fact, Again, this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah says, for example, in chapter 10, 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in God, for He has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a new bride, or as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So that's how he sees the bride. A new city, Jerusalem. A heavenly city. And so I think it's quite clear that when you look at actually what is the new Jerusalem, what is the city that is being described here, it's being described in the picture of the bride of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John's vision of the new Jerusalem, the new city, is a vision where the city of God is painted in pictures of perfection and purity. I mean, this is a perfect city, right? Look at all the language that's used by the measurements in verses 12 through 21. I mean, 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes, 12 foundations, 12 names, 12 apostles, 12 jewels, uh, jewels, 12 pearls. And then verse 16, it's four square. It's perfect. And at verse 17, it's 144 cubits, 12 times 12. John loves this number 12, perfection. That's what he's describing. He's describing a city that is perfect. But the city itself it should not be thought primarily of as just a physical structure, but a spiritual composition that is made up of people who belong to it. The bride, the wife of the Lamb. In other words, this city, the holy city, this new Jerusalem, is none other than the glorified church, the bride of her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't think of it primarily as some physical entity. I mean, you hear lots of preaching about the city that is to come. It's just perfect. It's going to come down out of heaven. It's going to hang there in space. And it's just this perfect cube. And there we are, living in that city. But that's not how John pictures it. Yes, he pictures it in measurements of perfection. But he is describing a people. 
He is describing the bride. He is describing the wife of the Lamb. And notice, for example, in verse 27 of chapter 21, there's no uncleanness in the city, right? Verse 25, there's no night in the city, no darkness. It's the holy city, verse 2. And if you look at verse 10, he showed me the great high, took me to the great high mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11, having the glory of God. No darkness, no defilement, just the glory of God on display. And out of the city, you'll notice in chapter 22, two things, right? Verses 1 through 5, you have this river of life. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. So if you would like to say the water of life, fine, the river of life. And secondly, verse 2, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit. So when you think about a river of life and when you think about a tree of life, you might think in physical terms of eating and drinking. So, from the river of life I drink, from the tree of life I eat. And by the way, both these things, rivers, trees, are represented in the first garden, the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. That there in the Garden of Eden is the tree of life. Isn't the tree of life the ultimate thing that God forbids Adam from actually going and taking from because it represents eternal life? That if you eat of the tree of life, you live forever. If you drink of the river of life, you never thirst again. You live forever. It's just a picture, isn't it? Beautiful picture of a never-ending life, an eternal life, a life that is to come. A participation in that life. A participation in eternal life. Nothing accursed like the old city where their Lord was crucified. Revelation chapter 11. Nothing like old Jerusalem. Nothing like this world. But something that is brand new because Christ has brought about a new creation. And you will notice in verse 21 at the end of verse 27. Who lives in the city? Who are the citizens of the city? Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's who belongs to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. The only people that are there in that city are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And as we know, verse 22 of chapter 21, God is the temple. And verse 23, chapter 21, God is the light. What does that tell you? That that speaks to you of our worship. God is the temple. What do you do when you go to a temple? You worship You worship God. There is no temple there because God is the temple. The Lamb is the temple. And so we go there to worship, to worship our God, this new city that we have. And this is the place where there is no darkness, just light speaks of our fellowship and our walk with God. We walk in the light. We no longer walk in the darkness. This is like Abel, isn't it? And Enoch. I mean, what characterizes the life of Abel? He offered a better sacrifice to God than Cain. He came to worship God with the right sacrifice. What about Enoch? What did he do? He walked with God. He walked in such a way that God took him to himself. So here represented for us in this eternal kingdom, the presence of the living God and our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, is representative of the fact that we will worship him and we will have fellowship with him forever and ever. When you read about the life of Abraham, right? In chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says that Abraham was looking forward to the city that had foundations whose builder and maker were God. Chapter 11 of Hebrews again, verse 16, God has prepared for us a city in a better country, a heavenly country. Now you know people from all over the world love to come to America, right? (laughs) In fact, doesn't matter how they come, they want to come, right? And they're pouring into our country, whether illegally or legally, they come to this country because they perceive that here is freedom, that here is something that is greater than where we're coming from. That's where we're going to, but you know they discover when they get here that the same problems are here as where they left behind. 
Abraham says, look, I'm going to another place, another country, a better country, a heavenly country, with a better city, an eternal city, because that's where God is. That's where I'm traveling to, he says. And so, you have come, according to Hebrews 12 and verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And here, dear congregation, we have no lasting city, as Hebrews 13 reminds us. No lasting city, but we seek, we look for the city that is to come. The presence of God, the dwelling place of God, is now with man, and we shall be with him forever and ever. So what happens in this city, right? Well, we've already said there's fellowship, there's worship, and that brings me to my last point, there's a new communion. There's a new communion. The word new is interesting, isn't it? Because it's not the old. It's not even like the old. It's something brand new. So a new communion is something that is different. And why is it different? Because it's a different location, yes. But because we are with God. And forever we are with God. There's no more sin. There's no more troubles, there's no more affliction, there's no more tribulations, there's no more sorrows. All things new, Jesus says. And our fellowship, by the way, will be what you could call new covenant fellowship, new covenant communion. It's already begun, right? Because Jesus is our mediator, the mediator of the new covenant. So if you look at chapter 21 and verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Isn't that something brand new? Actually dwelling with God being with God. So here in Revelation 21, when we talk about a new communion, it's perfectly fulfilled, isn't it? Notice in those verses, verse 3 and verse 4 of chapter 21, God says, I will, deal with, I will dwell with you. Secondly, he says, you are my people. You belong to me. And thirdly, I am your God. God is our God. So God dwells with us. We are God's people. And God is our God. And dear brother and sister, there is nothing to hinder that communion. Now we come, we have communion with God, we have fellowship with God, and there are many things that might interrupt that fellowship. There are many things here below that might intrude on your mind as you're seeking to worship God. There are the troubles of life. There are the concerns you have about what's out there tomorrow when you go into the world. Not then. Not there. Nothing to trouble you. No more sin. No more pain. No more sorrow, no more afflictions, no more crying, nothing. All passed away, everything brand new. And notice in chapter 22 verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. What will I find there? I will find the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Verse 4, chapter 22, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And if you go to the end of uh, verse 5, the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So I get to serve God. I get to see God. I get to enjoy God. I get to be with God, to dwell with God. And I get to live with Him and reign with Him forever and ever and ever. No end. No end. Because this is only the beginning. There is no end. Right? So not only do I get to serve in this way and see God, but notice back in chapter 21, verse 4, no more tears. Ah, oh, we have tears every day, don't we? We grieve, we mourn, we cry, we suffer. No more death. I mean, how much death has the world gone through in the last two years, right? Seems to be big numbers. People dying. But people have always died. No more death. Death is the wages of sin. No more sin to bring about death. Right? So no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Jesus shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why? Because all of our present sorrows will be gone and everything will be brand new. 
expressed in language we can understand and comprehend the extremity of pain, the extremity of sorrow, death, no more. No more to weigh us down, no more to trouble us because we've been delivered finally from that to serve God, see God, enjoy God, be with Him, dwell with Him, live with Him, and reign with Him forever and ever. And He did it. And He's going to do it and bring it to the end because He's sovereign. Because only he can make all things brand new. I mean, isn't this the hope that we have? Because verse 20, chapter 21, verse 4 says, The former things have passed away. Jesus says, Behold, I'm making all things new. All things new. So my eternity and, I uh, sorry, my communion and your communion will be eternal. And will be in eternity with our eternal God. Forever and forever. No more sin. Just Jesus. No more weeping and lamenting my spiritual weakness and condition. Just Jesus. I shall see him as he is. I'll be like him when I see him, right? When he comes for me. And I'll be like that forever and ever. Like the Savior. Like Christ. Oh, how I need that change. I'm in a process right now. I'm being changed. But then... I will be changed. We shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. In a moment when Jesus comes. No more shame. Uh, sin brings shame to us, doesn't it? We remember our shame. We remember it. We feel it. No more shame. No more sin. Can you imagine some, anything better than that? You see, the end, if they can call that an end, is far better than just the beginning. Look where you have come from. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Look at what God has done. He has saved you by His grace. And now He's been transforming you and bringing you into likeness to His Son. And then one day it shall be sealed and done and you shall be like Him forever and ever. You can smell it now, if, you, if I can use that word. You can sense it. You can feel it. But it is coming. And it's a totally different change, right? Right now we are surrounded by the physical and by all the weakness of it and all the defilement of it. But not then. It shall be eternal. And we shall be with our Lord, our God, our Savior. So my hope has already begun. The end for me, for you, if you know Jesus, is better than the beginning. It's coming. My hope is real. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. My hope. Ah, but not only my hope, my home. Our homes are so changeable. We upgrade them, we sell them, we move on, we change them, whatever it is, because this world is changeable and fickle. But my home that has come is being prepared by Jesus who said, if I go away... I will prepare a place for you in my Father's house on many mansions. And where I am, there you will be also. A new hope and a new home. And this is what we find here at the end of this glorious book of Revelation. So John ends, doesn't he? Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, what can we say to these magnificent declarations that are made in these final chapters in Revelation about what we shall enter into and experience finally? You shall make all things new. The old will have passed. The former things have passed away. They will not trouble us. They will not come to remembrance. They will be done. Help us to live in the light of that glorious hope that we have by faith. It is by faith that we please you. We would be like Abraham, and we would be like Enoch, and we would be like Noah, and we would be like, like David, walking by faith. Give us an anticipation and a longing to be like Jesus Christ, even now, even today. Change us and conform us and prepare us for the city, for the home that you have made for us, where our dwelling place will be with you, our God, and 
you will be with us. So we praise you for these things. Thank you for these, this word that you've given to us. May our hearts and minds be changed. Thank you that our sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for new life, new hope, and for this change that we long for. So work in us each day, we pray, Lord. Help us to serve you tomorrow in the world. Give us joy in our daily life and daily work. Lift up our hearts, we pray, to see Christ. So thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.